0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: All of these streaming services, I and mean, there's going to be about 40 of them around in the very near future, if you look at the ad-supported ones and the subscriber-supported ones and so on, um, fatigue is definitely going to be an issue. And they're all hitting at this moment of peak attention economy, which means basically no one's got spare time to subscribe to a new one. They've got to stop doing something else, whether they've got to stop doing so much video gaming or they've got to sleep a bit less.
0: This week, The Economist magazine on its cover feature, the $650 billion Binge on Hollywood and big tech streaming wars. Stay with us. Full disclosure airs on NPR member station VPM News, using the power of media to educate, entertain, and inspire. We're also on npr.org, the NPR One app, and on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. Joining us from London is Tamzin Booth, author of The Economist magazine's cover package this week, the six hundred and fifty billion dollar binge on the various streaming wars and the disruption and the reconstruction of of big media. How are you?
1: I'm so well. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for uh, joining us. I'm grateful. Uh, there are a couple of numbers that really stood out in the briefing that I saw this week. With a, uh, um, you know, you compare the money that's been spent on the streaming wars and the various investments in medias roughly as much cash over $100 billion this year is being invested in content as it is in America's oil industry. In total, the entertainment business has spent at least $650 billion on acquisitions and programming in the past five years. Is that a function of this very frothy capital markets that no one's really being judged on on near-term profitability?
1: Well, Raven, I I really see it a lot more positively than that. I think um, the the consumer... Has has really triumphed in the area of content production. Um, there's just so much money going into um, producing great television programming and 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 film and so on. And it's it's really, I mean, I, I see it as a sort of um, if you like, a, a three-chapter narrative with with a prequel, by the way. The prequel was Netflix coming in. To streaming in 2000, you know, nearly t- just over 10 years ago now, and really revolutionising um, in, in a small way at first, but they got so many subscribers over time, so just revolutionising um, the way in which television is delivered. So that's the prequel, and at first, the the entertainment industry didn't really realise what was what was going on, how big a change was coming their way, and I guess what's happening um, right now um this month, this autumn, is that the is that the media giants um are are responding and the the effect is just to spend so much more money on content more than ever before as as you mention. Um, and and really the consumer has been put in control because of course it's it's all on demand. So you've got the prequel, that's the first chapter, the triumph of the consumer, and you're going to see this kind of spending bonanza carry on for several years now, I think. Um, in Last year, you had um, 496 new scripted dramas made. That's double what, um, what got made in, in 2010. You've got an incredibly diverse range of storytelling going on more than ever in the past. So that's what you're going to see um, in this current chapter, But as you hinted, you know, it's a it's a ton of money and it's not sustainable, probably. So the next stage, the the following chapter is going to be some kind of a shakeout. Inevitably, you know, the, the money can't keep pouring in at this level. And then the third chapter is is the mystery. You know, what's going to happen when you have this shakeout and. Um, who's going to get absorbed? What happens to the level of content spending? and is the is there a happy ending for the for the TV viewer?
0: Well, talk about just even the haves have lots and the have nots. A dollar invested in Viacom, you point out a decade ago is worth ninety five cents today. For Netflix, the figure is thirty seven dollars. And yet, Netflix is burning $3 billion a year and would need to raise prices by 15% just to break even. Tricky when there are over 30 rival services. The hope there is that its fast-growing international markets will create economies of scale. Um so American media firms have had to build up with $500 billion of borrowing. I'm wondering when the payoff is with this. I mean right now Disney is getting forbearance from Wall Street and saying that Disney Plus is coming out at a teaser rate. We're facing disruption in ESPN, which was our cash cow. Uh, the stock is at an all-time high and and people who are going out there and spending seem to be getting the premium from Wall Street.
1: That's right. I mean, the new new thing is, is that, of course, Disney Plus has just launched um, a a few days ago. And Disney Plus is is really seen um, as, as a kind of Netflix killer. And I mean, heaven knows it's it's really taken the the big media companies, um, Time Time Warner, um, Warner Media, but backed now, of course, by AT&T. These kind of giant media companies, Universal, owned by Comcast, it's taken them um, quite a while to react to Netflix. But now here they are, um, and everyone's waiting to see um, whether whether in fact they are going to take Netflix down or not. Um and so far, um, I think the signs are. I mean, it's it's obviously incredibly early days, but I don't think that the 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 Disney Plus launch, which is incredibly successful so far, it doesn't seem to be having an obvious negative effect on Netflix. But as I say, it's really early days. So the you know, Disney Plus, um, you know, it's it, it has a has an incredible range of programming, clearly. So Bob Iger, the CEO, has amassed. Um, a formidable array of content through a series of acquisitions: um, 21st Century Fox, Marvel, Lucasfilm, Pixar. They really have um, a large slice of everything that people want to watch, especially if you're, especially if you've got children in the home. Um, and you know, suddenly that's all on offer, and they have used every bit of their theme parks, their cruise lines, their um, broadcast stations, and they just really utilized the whole ecosystem machine to to get this thing launched. And it was fascinating to see. At first, they had you know it was so popular that they had all these tech glitches, servers kind of struggled to to handle all the volume. And by the second day, they had about they had 10 million people signed up. I mean, those aren't paying subscribers yet. Um, but certainly, there's no question that it was a hot launch um, and, a, and a huge amount of interest. Um, and as for Netflix, I think the the the, the tricky thing um, is is twofold really. I mean, it's really about um, pricing power. It's going to be hard for them to lift prices with all these new entrants coming in. So, I mean, Disney Plus at six ninety nine dollars is is you know it's incredibly aggressive pricing and below what a lot of people thought Disney would do. So it's going to constrain Netflix's um, ability, presumably, to lift prices. And also, um, of course, you know, finally, these large media firms have figured out that maybe it's not such a good idea to hand Netflix their sort of crown jewels of programming, like The Office and Friends and some of these incredibly beloved um, old shows. So those are being pulled off. Well, pause pause um, for a minute. Re-
0: Tamsin, r- I'm reminded of this commercial and I'm dating myself now, but you also covered the industry going back. 20 years ago, in 1999, Quest, which was then a high-flying regional bell company which specialized in in fiber optics, aired this commercial where a wary traveler walks into this uh, Roy's Motel and Cafe. It was a historic Route 66 landmark in California and simply asks uh, the clerk, um, is there cable TV in in the rooms? And she looks at him and kind of with this this dumb look and responds, every movie ever made, any time and that was supposed to be the holy grail then. And I thought that the closest thing we got to that was initially with uh, the DVD delivery service of Netflix, which itself was funky and disruptive and broke up Blockbuster Video and the others. Why then was Netflix positioned, if you take me back to 2007 and 2008, to build uh, the kind of the envy of the industry? It didn't have a library of its own. It just it just conjured up market capitalization and budget to go out and start you know, buying content or leasing content from the major studios?
1: Well, the thing is about Netflix is they're just they're just incredibly um, attuned to to what consumers want. And for them, it was a really kind of early internet, sort of utopian, Dream of kind of just getting rid of all these windows, which, um, as Ted Sarandos told me recently in in um, in Los Angeles, it's just the most consumer unfriendly thing ever. This sort of thing where you know you can only see that film in the cinemas, and then you have to wait for it to do this, and then you can only get it in pay per view at that. And you know by the time, you know by the time you've waited for that, you've forgotten about the film anyway. So they just have this complete devotion to to consumers and there was a real complacency and you know you know bordering on arrogance of these large media companies that they just they never thought it would grow into such a threat and so they just saw it as. Another great revenue stream. But why wouldn't it?
0: Here's what I don't understand: Uh, If you're a Viacom, if you're a Time Warner, you have no love lost for a Comcast or one of these cable providers and others. What was preventing them from going up? I believe the broadband technology was there, and even putting it on a on a website and saying you can stream these things per view. Is it that they were afraid of disrupting their DVD cash cow? Is it a a case of, I mean, the library was there. The Warner Brothers Library was there. The Disney Library was there. These things could have been put up even pre-iPhone, pre-mobile, on proprietary websites where you'd have to go in and and pay for things a la carte.
1: Well, I guess they are right to think that the Windows model is is a very profitable model. Um, It's got about sort of about 50% profit margins. I mean, it, it was just an absolute... It was a beautiful business model. When you say
0: the Windows day. model, it was it was uh, Windows for film theatrical release and then DVD and whatnot.
1: Yeah, that's right, and and also of course making making people watch adverts as well. I mean that 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 combination of broadcast um, television with ads and then the windowing model for for movies and and television programs it was just a very very successful business model, and it has. It has um, and it's lasted for a long time, with the media, the content firms being able to charge Comcast and um, the other cable firms just in- increasing fees each each year. Um, it was a model that worked very well, but they milked it for so long that it broke eventually. Um, and to your point about you know, why would Viacom or, or the others not have, have done this themselves in, in terms of going for streaming earlier, well, the problem with the streaming model is, is that it's, you know, it's, it's very low profitability. Indeed, it's hard to see it even breaking even a lot, at a lot of firms. So it's, it's not an attractive model. So it remains to be seen who can make it pay and over what time period.
0: Ostensibly, I look at the universe of coverage uh, of media and telecom in the street and, and the envied broadband player in Comcast, which is the biggest cable company in the country, seemingly has the most to lose from cord cutting. And it does have enormous hemorrhages of, of right now people coming in and saying, I don't want to pay the 150 bucks a month, I just want – Uh, This ideal of of broadband only, if you could give it to me at 40, 50 bucks a month and let me go a la carte and pick the things that I want on over the top on a, you know, either a Roku or an Apple TV. Why isn't the street so worried about cable companies like that? I mean, yes, they do have NBC Universal, Comcast does have sports relationships and the like, but at its core, its cash cow is, is that old relationship, the bundled relationship that we are the gatekeeper to the majority of Americans on broadband consuming the content that we pick out
1: yes that's right I mean Comcast um, clearly still has a very big business in the old world and that's probably one reason why their planned service for next year peacock um, is is going to be mainly ad supported so it's you know Comcast is a little is straddling the two worlds more and in addition of course um, Comcast has the the huge advantage of of being a a fantastic broadband player because in a in a way the achilles heel of streaming is that you've got to have great broadband and it's and it's not and it's not cheap but i think what you're seeing um is a really interesting contrast between the firms um that are really dependent on the old sort of legacy media model the pure media firms and that's sort of chiefly Disney um, and Viacom and Sony, perhaps, Discovery. And then you've got these other um, players, such as Comcast, AT&T with Time Warner, um, obviously Apple and Amazon that are, you know, they've got a really strong business model that's quite apart from the business of making movies and television. Um, And it's going to be really interesting to see um, whether the pure media players do as well as those with this very robust kind of other business.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Tamsin Booth of The Economist. She authored this week's cover package, The $650 Billion Binge. It is a, a joy for, for media and entertainment wonks to read. I am trying to get my head around AT&T, HBO, Time Warner, that massive binge that they did and in, in taking on. Now they have about $160 billion debt load, Tamsin. And you know that AT&T in kind of its vintage Ma Bell incarnation is looked at as a widows and orphans player very reliable for its dividend just a steady even if it's a declining annuity but then they're also being pushed to go out and and make this wild wild bet on on buying HBO and is there in this this idea of this kind of this fabled quadruple play bundle where not only are they giving me data you know voice um, all these bells and whistles and, and you know, you're, you're competing kind of on the, the commodity wireless package thing. But they're also saying with 5G coming down the pike, I'm also giving you this this crown jewel thing of unlimited HBO. Is that likely to happen? And it, can it ever be profitable for them? I always wonder about this.
1: That's a great question. Um AT and T and HBO Max. It's it's recently on. You know, they gave a lot of details about the new service just um just a few a couple of weeks ago. It's really the talk of the industry right now, as you know, because I mean, first of all, AT and T has had you know the scariest hedge fund in the world circling it in the in the form of Elliott, asking you know why did it complete that very pricey acquisition of DirecTV and of course of of Time Warner as well, and asking whether it all makes sense and the you know the, the 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 gossip and the and the the talk is just you know is hbo going to thrive under their ownership and you have this whole set of um you know creative people creative executives who love hbo as it has been for a long time you know it's kind of the most sort of elite um, producer of television, indeed. As you know, it used to say, it's not television, it's HBO. Right. And now um, AT&T, uh, they want it to make a lot more and there are two sort of really opposing views on that. One camp says— We wanted well, to make
0: a lot more content or a lot more profit? This is where I, I lo- don't lo- understand it.
1: <laughs> at and <laughs> well, is being is- judged
0: on cash flow, EBITDA, profitability. HBO and the others are being told, like, when you have Stanky come in and, and, and Plepler left HBO, and they're telling you to make more more of it, what is that more?
1: Well, Stanky wants HBO very simply to take on Netflix and Netflix is a, is a volume producer. So HBO, you know, if they want to do that, they have to make a lot more. But the creative types and the sort of the guardians of the of the HBO culture say, you know, um, you know, you can't make more and keep the quality and so with hbo max of course they're adding lots of different content in, in, in from the movie studio from other from from other um cable networks and the risk you know there's clearly a risk that the the hbo brand will get diluted and maybe it kind of really won't stand for anything um, anyway, we won't stand for something as as um, as precise in the future. But I think personally, I think that the jury is is really out on that. I, I think that you know you can make programming for everyone and think about a wider range of uh, of, of of you know a bigger market and a kind of a the four quadrant audience as as it's called, which is what Netflix is aiming for. So I I think um I, I think we'll have to wait and see whether whether that succeeds. But it's certainly true to your point about. Um, cash flow at AT and T and the price of those acquisitions—that I think, you know, the 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 room for maneuver um, is in, the, and the room for error is is definitely a bit tighter than for for the tech giants, for instance. I mean, they're spending five to six billion a year on on content. This is Apple and Amazon, and that's just it's just pocket change for them. Whereas for AT and T, um, it, it's really crucial that HBO HBO Max works. And when I
0: look at a company like Disney, which recently hit an all-time high and on enthusiasm on an admittedly money-losing product, which is this Disney Plus thing, the problem also is that Disney Plus is not the only foray. It might be the most high-profile thing they have, but Disney needs to worry about the the diminishing – uh, cash cow it has in espn i believe it now has full ownership of hulu which people i'm not necessarily sure if it's a must-have streaming service but increasingly you're being pointed to it for things like the handmaiden's tale have they even attempted to package those three under one kind of giant you know mickey mouse package for a family is there any way to do it that is not going to shock you in thinking oh my gosh i'm paying you 75 dollars? what the heck
1: Yes, no. Hulu is is fascinating. I mean, with the Disney Plus launch, um, it's it's sort of you know we're not hearing all that much about Hulu, right? But I think that's likely to change, um, next year. I mean, the the thing about Disney Plus and the reason that Bob Iger went on the acquisition spree, in in my interpretation, I think it's that, you know, they really appreciate the need, um, to 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 have a a, a wider audience, not just the not just the family. Um, The household with 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 kids. And so I think that's really the weakness of Disney Plus, along with perhaps not quite enough original fresh content being pumped into it all the time. So I think very much that Hulu will be more emphasised in the future as something is as sort of more of a kind of a match for Netflix and also something you know, also something that can all be bundled together with ESPN plus um Hulu and, and Disney Plus as well. So you'll definitely see more about that.
0: Why are all these players uh, terrified of this concept of the skinny bundle? I'm reminded of the Bruce Springsteen song, you know, 57 channels and nothing's on, right? And nothing on. But now it's more like 657 channels and nothing's on. If I look at my Comcast subscription, there's so little. I almost feel anachronistic using the remote control and the cable box because – what am I paying you all this for? Your curation, your package, your you know filling the grocery card for me and 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 sending me out with one price thing. It's it's not really working for me. Uh, but the the opposite of that, the opposite prospect that I have, Tamsin, is login fatigue. If I want to break that up and just get a fifty dollars broadband plan from Comcast and pay for my Apple TV. And pay for my Amazon Prime streaming and pay for Spotify, which is my music budget, pay for Netflix, pay for Disney Plus, Hulu, all the various other things that I want to do. How many different credit card transactions do I have to make? How many logins do I need? How many apps do I have to manage on this over-the-top thing at the point where I was like, I actually miss Comcast's, you know, traditional set-top box curation?
1: That's absolutely right. Um I mean it's it's uh, it's it's funny to see, I think, that you know, there's so much obsession and interest with what programming is going to be on each of these streaming service, on each of the on services, on each of these apps, and you know, how many, um, how many completely new shows are there? What are the actors? What are the producers? How, are they critically acclaimed? are they not, etc. So the the industry itself is obsessed with the content, and as you say, actually for for consumers, often it's the interface, it's the ease of use um that really counts and you and you um in fact i heard uh, one CEO of a, a large cable company that shall remain nameless just pointing out that people get, you know, people spend about five minutes on Netflix. They can't find what they want and then they just want to watch Friends or, or, or whatever it is. So, no, that's absolutely right. And, and all of these streaming services, I mean, there's going to be about 40 of them around in the very near future if you look at the ad-supported ones and the subscriber-supported ones and so on. Um, fatigue is definitely going to be an issue and they're all hitting at this moment of peak attention economy which means basically no one's got spare time to subscribe to a new one they've got to stop doing something else whether they've got to stop doing so much video gaming or they've got to sleep a bit less or whatever so no that's absolutely right and then so an, another theory um is is that aggregation and bundling and just interfaces are going to become a lot more important in the future but if you look at the economics of it actually you know by the time you've paid for your 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 great broadband um, your maybe your skinny bundles so that you can still get news and sports. People are probably really only going to choose two or three, maybe four of these streaming services. So you can see why the competition is is going to be so so, so tough for them.
0: So I do want I I do want to look at someone. You know, maybe you you might look at them as a wallflower right now. I mean, un, you you write that unlike in search or social media, no firm in television and video streaming has more than a twenty percent market share by revenues. Uh, if we even take just in music, Spotify has a 34% market share in America. It seems nowhere close to profitability. A lot of this, as I said earlier, might be a function of a really frothy risk-on venture capital is available to everyone. We take VC funded rides with Uber. We did it with WeWork and you know, VC funded food delivery services. Take a wallflower like a Verizon, looking at this. They did not partake like an ATT did. Or take someone like a Viacom who is is is, is single right now, is not. You know, uh, assumed into any other giant, uh, mega, you know, broadband and, and and content play. Are they maybe just sitting it out?
1: Again, Robin, I don't, I don't really have an answer to that. Um, if, I've not thought about Verizon or kind of what people who aren't in it might do. I've sort of really. I've really focused on kind of. I mean, there's so many players who are in it that I've kind of thought about them. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. I mean, one another. I mean, just a suggestion, but the role of the the tech giants is is yeah, kind so of interesting. On that
0: pivot to the tech giants, this is as you as you point out in this cover package. It's. I wouldn't say it's a rounding error for a Google or for an Apple or for an Amazon, but it's definitely not core to their business. Maybe Amazon Prime is looking at this as a way to keep uh, stickiness. Um that you can see some shows on that over the top, but that seems to be like asymmetric competition where some are measured purely on that, like a like a Viacom or a CBS or a Comcast NBC Union. Others, you can't even break that out in their financials, like an Apple.
1: Yes, that's right. I, mean, I I think there's a there's some big differences between Amazon and and Apple in this industry. So Apple is seen as being a lot more unpredictable. In that they could kind of, they could sort of, they could lower their spending or they could even exit the business. Although you see with the talks with um, Richard Plepler, ex of HBO, um, that that would seem to indicate more seriousness rather than less. And so Apple is unpredictable. On the other hand, um, Apple is perhaps kind of has the most scope to come in and perhaps actually swallow one of these pure media firms whole. So Bob Iger's um, autobiography, um, The Ride of a Lifetime, um, it had this this line in it which everyone's been talking about which is that if Steve Jobs were were still alive he believes that Disney and Apple would have combined i mean the the prospect of of a of a company of that size and 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 kind of cultural tech clout is is absolutely astonishing so apple's very much um a wild card and it's I mean, and and Amazon, um on the other hand, Jeff Bezos seems incredibly keen and sort of naturally, really interested in the product and the and the industry. Um And I guess that it's it's really fascinating, I think, to see these two companies, which are such leaders. Um, in their own fields, sort of getting it a little bit wrong in some areas of, of the entertainment business. So you know, neither of them have. I thought I thought about that hits. quote
0: with Steve Jobs and Disney and, and people forget that Pixar was his big foray back into the big time. I believe, you know, when he was coming out of the wilderness in the late 90s and now Pixar is wholly owned by Disney as is the Star Wars franchise and everything else. And, um, you know, the man, the late legendary brains behind Apple kind of. Did have a passion for content.
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, I think that you know it's an open question whether one can say the same of of Tim Cook. Um, You know, there was lots of kind of howls of of you know, if not of laughter, then at least a, a, a bit of giggling in in Hollywood um just at the idea that apple is trying to produce these so-called positive stories and um you know stories that you can believe in it all seems quite heavy handed but on the other hand you know amazon and apple they're they're newcomers and you know over decades people as you know have gone into hollywood kind of made a few errors at first and then they sort of get sucked into the to the system and they learn, and they and they get absorbed. So I think it's 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 really early days, and um, no doubt um, they will both um, chop and change their strategies.
0: You know, Thames in my my book, which came out two years ago on the cocaine wars in Miami, was optioned for uh, a, a streaming series, and the option just lapsed about two years later. And I think one of the problems was that it was so hard to find a showrunner. It's such a seller's market if you're talent out there. You're getting snapped up. You know, J.J. Abrams, some of the premier. Outfits, as you point out in this cover package, are getting like Wall Street Rainmaker type packages to lock them up with the likes of Disney or Apple or Netflix for five or six years out.
1: Well, I think that you should take uh, take your book back and try again. I mean, as a as actually as a, I mean, this the industry is so receptive to ideas right now. Um as in fact as a, as an experiment I, I pitched some um some kind of slightly half baked idea to one of the one of the streamers recently and they were really keen. It was <laughs> it was amazing. So don't give up. Um, Would be would be my advice Oh, while the music's on
0: to keep dancing. You point out the flurry of consolidation created a handful of giant content owners with massive back catalogs and a willingness to spend heavily on old shows and new programming. In October, HBO Max reportedly agreed to pay over five hundred million dollars for the American rights to air 23 old series and three new ones of South Park of Viacom. And I mean that's a that's – a, this is what I don't understand. Viacom is struggling right now. You point out that a dollar invested in Viacom a decade ago is worth 95 cents now. Viacom owns Comedy Central. South Park is a cornerstone uh, a franchise of Comedy Central and yet you have a competitor, AT&T's HBO Max, coming in and paying top dollar to kind of you know drink the milkshake, if you will, of a Comedy Central asset.
1: That's right. I mean, you know, having spent uh, I I just went um, around the studios and executives um, in L.A. the other week. I mean, really, everyone knows that this content binge cannot last, Um, but no one's going to stop it. No one's going to stop bidding. And so the question is whether it it sort of rises and rises and then sort of plateaus and then just gently kind of falls back and and gets sort of, gets reined in. I mean, you have Netflix spending 15 billion a year. I mean, no one thinks that that can continue. Or whether it goes up and up and then crashes, in which case, you know, there'll be some blood on the floor. But, you know, everyone, I guess, is hoping for something, um, a a gradual um, return of, of good sense.
0: You point out, uh, and, and citing Bloomberg Intelligence, that the average cost of producing a single episode of a scripted drama is close to $6 million, twice the going rate of three to four years ago. This year, 16 firms will spend a total of $100 billion on content, according to UBS. And again, that's roughly equal to the sum invested in America's oil industry this year. In the few minutes we have left with you, Tamsin, I do want to get to the you know what happens when the music stops. We've seen uh, the telecom crash. We saw... You know, airlines, discount airlines coming out. On the other end of it is a decidedly uncustomer-friendly oligopoly. There are a couple of, of of slow businesses that are not very sensitive to customers' concerns. Whether you look at a Comcast or a United Airlines, do you see that happening when we go risk off?
1: Well, I think that's right because, particularly as as I mentioned, the pure media firms don't have much margin for error. Um Disney is going to have to cope with, you know, losses on Disney Plus for a good few years now. It expects to break even in 2024. Meanwhile, the D- Disney Plus is accelerating the decline of its big profit making business. Viacom also, I mean, Viacom and CBS are getting back together partly in order to have the scale to cope in this new landscape. But, the, you know, the, the M&A people definitely think that this shakeout is going to produce more activity and then the the key is is going to be keeping that diversity and the number of players in the marketplace. Um and also stopping the the cash rich, you know, the the massive gargantuan tech giants from just coming in and and snapping things up. So we're recommending the Economist is recommending that, you know, really that policymakers keep a close eye on um, on you know making sure that no one firm gets gets a really big share of the of the content market that that they start dominating what gets made. You know, we should keep a an open access policy. Um, and if you've, if you've got a gateway to content like Apple, you mustn't discriminate against particular content firms. So I think there's no question that when the shakeout comes, it's going to be really important to, to keep a close eye on the way that the, the media landscape evolves. I'm thinking
0: about this in my entire uh, entertainment budget, and I go with my son to football games, and you know we spend quite a bit as ESPN being a portion, or the, the the panoply of ESPN channels being a portion of our Comcast subscription. What about sports, and specifically, you know, this is throwing a little bit of a wild card at you when virtual reality. Gets into the equation when these these uh, franchises like I'm a big Lakers fan and I live on the East Coast or I'm a big Dodgers fan or I'm a big Dolphins fan you know Miami LA other places and I live on the East Coast and I'm going to be able to attend these games with some sort of uh, you know VR headset and the rents can then accrue back to the sports franchises they can say all right ESPN is cut out of this or the regional Comcast sports networks are. Car out of it, and if you want to subscribe to us, you could pay us two, three hundred dollars a year. There are so many people coming at us in the attention economy, and if i if I broaden it out, the New York Times wants a login, the washington post, the wall street journal it, it it's really not just the, uh, the, the the traditional media and entertainment companies, it's your newspaper company, it's the media streamers. I'm trying to take this concept of of login overwhelming. Uh, you know, uh, being overwhelmed by logins and login fatigues to what it could look like in five years. We're going to get hit by 360 degrees of this.
1: Yes, I th- I think that's absolutely right. Uh, although I, mean, I suppose that there is one, you know, one great result of that, which is that n- no one form of entertainment or company um, has a lot of control over what we're seeing and watching and thinking. So I, th- I think the diversity of of, of logins and choices um, is, is, a, is a great thing.
0: In your research, uh, you know, in, in closing in the few minutes we have left with you, do you suspect that one or two players are really positioned, whether it's their cash balance, whether it's uh, um, the, the economics of their business or the pace with which they've invested into this disruption to be the victors of, of this $650 billion arms race, if you will?
1: That's an excellent question. I, I this is why this doubt. is why
0: Thames and I get paid the big bucks. I, I ask the excellent <laughs> questions.
1: <laughs> <laughs> One thing I, I I think that people are overstating the risk to Netflix. I mean that they, they had a the big share price fall this year um, because you know there are so many new entrants. But what I love about Netflix is they is, they, is that they just have they're far ahead on the global race. So HBO Max, Disney Plus, they're all taking their time to kind of go truly global, um, and you and sort of make use of the 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 kind of the direct consumer relationship that OTT gives you. Over the but top, Netflix the over the top is, set. That, that, you will. that that's right. Um, Netflix is making local programming in so many different countries. They're taking, um, you know, shows that are made in Spain and they're. Um, you know they're they're seeing a massive success for those across the Spanish-speaking world. They're they're just I mean 90% of their subscriber growth now is now coming from international. And if you think about the, the you know the number of broadband households, and if they could get you know a third of all of those households with their extremely um, low pricing and brilliant offer. I I think that's I think they they're in a fantastic position. I think that will be um, that 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 is being underestimated at the moment.
0: And any other regulatory concerns with yours, with with this administration, the Trump administration, there was a hostility toward net neutrality, or at least they took their eye off the ball. Is that going to be something that changes the conversation in this? If you are a, a big broadband provider, you can't throttle any of these these newbies, any of these new players. You have to be agnostic and open to any of them.
1: I think that's a worry for Netflix for for sure. Um, but Robert, I'm I'm afraid I haven't looked in detail at net neutrality, so I'm going to call it. I've got to call it um, a day on that.
0: Close us out. Uh, the big uh, the, the big one thing we should be looking for in the next year. The thing, the intervening variable that could maybe pop this if it's a bubble that could accelerate it, that could throw all of the assumptions into doubt.
1: I think the really startling thing that could happen is a tech giant. Bidding for a, a a pure media player, a, a pure media company. I remember uh, I was covering the industry um, at the end of the Michael Eisner reign at Disney. Um, and I remember predicting that, you know, a big distribution company might come along and um, and make a bid. And sure enough, not long afterwards, Comcast did so i think this is not the end of the of of, of the, the the consolidation and a in the space and you know the the companies that have the money and the willingness and the interest um to do this are the tech giants and remember of course that uh, disney looked at buying twitter Iger has said, why not Apple plus Disney? So that, that would be my, um, my tip for, for the next few years as, as this all shakes out.
0: It's enough to give me an aneurysm, Tamsin. And that's even before I remember 18 of my different logins for the Apple TV. Tamsin <laughs> Booth of The Economist magazine. You must read this week's cover package, The $650 Billion Binge. I cannot thank you enough for joining us from London.
1: Thank you. I've enjoyed it.
0: Joining me in studio in downtown RVA is Michael Morris, Senior Managing Director at Guggenheim Securities. He covers media and Internet... Uh, sir, how are you?
2: I'm doing wonderful. How are you today?
0: Finally, finally have you on the show. I want to start by way of anecdote because we're talking here with the Economist on the great binging war, the 650 billion, whatever it is, the the massive binge. But let's let's take it on a micro level to an anecdote. Um, last thing I watched on Netflix was about four weeks ago was um, El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie, which was the sequel I never knew I needed to AMC's Breaking Bad. You got a, an extra, you know, what two hour dollop of Aaron Paul and Jesse. Clemens, really well done, a modern Western. And only after I watched it and was wowed by it did I think to myself, well, this was a cornerstone AMC Networks franchise, Breaking Bad, but I'm watching this on Netflix. Mm-hmm. What, what does
2: that say to you? What does that mean? Well, it, it shows you the importance of uh, intellectual property and who owns the rights in this in this world that is, uh, that, that's changing with, with streaming. And so Uh, You look at Breaking Bad, an incredible franchise written by a a, a local Richmonder, by the way.
0: Vince Gilligan, you are always welcome on this
2: show. Absolutely. Um, And and just to your point, a, a, a cornerstone franchise for AMC for the linear broadcast of AMC. Now... You see how important it is to own the actual intellectual property rights as you find new ways to monetize. It's not just about airing it and, and selling bundled subscriptions and commercials. You really want to have that that streaming option where people can watch on their own and, and pay you those subscription fees.
0: Correct me if I'm mistaken, but AMC's ancestry goes back to Cablevision, the Dolan family of New York, which is one of the biggest cable companies in the country. Absolutely. So was the prevailing logic back then, you got to split pure play content and distribution? Uh, it became that, right? So you think initially
2: the goal of these companies, once they put cable in the ground and got them to your home, they, they had to give you a reason to, to sign up and pay them. And so they really wanted to get as much content as possible. That was really the the, the origin for the ESPNs, the MTVs, the AMC networks. And what you saw is that, it, is that you started to have uh, – uh, competition from satellite providers, from telco providers, it didn't become as important to have those aligned anymore. And so you saw this, this splitting. And if you look at what the, the Dolan family has done, and, and we uh, spend a lot of time analyzing companies that they uh, either currently owned or have owned in the past, they've really concentrated focus on things like sports teams and live entertainment and, and, and I would argue uh, de-emphasize their holdings in, in traditional television assets.
0: So what is the aspirational mix these days? I mean, I look at a company like AT&T now. You're a young man, Mr. Mike Morris. But I remember at the great turn of the century, AT&T, the old AT&T, the stub AT&T, was briefly the biggest broadband provider in the United States. Mm -hmm. It had... uh, Cable companies, it bought old TCI. That's right. Um, you know, I, I used to cover this. Uh, it, it's so long ago, but then it binged on so much debt that it had to sell to Comcast and break up. Now AT and T is one of the biggest wireless players in the country. It has 160 billion in debt, and it owes, you <laughs> know, it's HBO and Time Warner. Yes. So, uh, and and you know, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. There are people who want it to grow, and there are people who want it to pare down debt and pay the dividend to orphans and widows. Uh, what does that mean to you?
2: Oh well, it just speaks to the complexity of what's going on, and and really uh, the, the the challenge in finding answers for how things are going to play out, right? So think of it this way: you have some companies that are consolidating. Uh, vertically, meaning they're consolidating distribution and, and content ownership, right? That's Comcast with the acquisition of NBCU, to your point, uh, AT&T acquiring uh, Time Warner, which included production and distribution capabilities. And you have other businesses, as you just mentioned, uh, the Dolan-owned Cablevision assets, which separated their, their entertainment properties. And so uh, really, I think one of the biggest struggles, if I look at it from a corporate perspective, is deciding how this is all going to play out, how the Consumer is going to work from the consumer perspective. It's a really tremendous opportunity right now because you're arguably getting more content than you've ever received in the past at a lower effective cost. So it's uh, it's it's an interesting time.
0: Break out AT and T for me for a second. One of your uh, one of your uh, colleagues in the industry, Craig Moffitt of Moffat Nathanson. He's been on before. He says in his bearishness on AT&T, let's leave aside for a moment that all signs point to the wireless industry getting more competitive. The real problem is with everything else. Everything else, he puts in quotes for AT&T, is 60% of revenues. Wireless will have to do an awful lot of heavy lifting. And we know the other contributor, this HBO Max product, this fabled product, is extremely, you know, budget intensive. To do a something like a Game of Thrones redo to keep the people in there uh, for their streaming binges. You're n- you're not going to get a Sopranos. It happens once every 10 years now. That is not immediately accretive. That requires a significant build out uh, at, a, at a time when your shareholders are also competing again for the dividend. They're pushing you to delever the balance sheet. I, I, and And I'm thinking back to myself. I know this is a you know, an earful, mm-hmm. but I love to walk mm-hmm. out on this. From a consumer, I would say the holy grail to me, if you wanted me to switch from Verizon to AT&T, is go ahead and offer me something like a quadruple quintuple play. Mm-hmm. Give me my voice. Give me my data. Give me my unlimited XYZ. Offer me a broadband play. Offer me unlimited streaming of what you have. In this case, it's HBO on an AT&T data plan. Is that there yet? Is that ever going to happen? Could that be profitable? Um, Well, look, I think almost the
2: complexity of what you just laid out really uh, captures what the challenge in this industry is. And I think the first thing that I would say is there's no answer. Okay, right now, there is not an answer for how to do this for the next generation of what's going on. And the reason that it became more complex is that, number one, you have more services that meet people's needs Okay, And number two, the technology, the ability, and, and you know, we started this conversation about content and the importance of, of content as, as part of these packages. The, the, the distribution of content has become fairly democratized, meaning you used to have a cable subscription. You had one choice. You paid for this cable subscription. You were, were, had really no optionality on the fee. The price was what it was. You took that price. And if you didn't like it, you could read a book. Right. Now you have just a tremendous spectrum of options. Okay, Now, to come back to your question about AT&T, and I have a colleague, Mike McCormack, who does tremendous amount of work, uh, tremendous amount of quality work on these telecom companies in particular. Um, But I think he wrote something even uh, yesterday on this topic, which was, you know, spending on content to try to drive these subscriptions, you know, at what cost and at what return? right? Uh, Meaning that you're in this sort of content spend race right now with competitors who maybe don't have the same financial constraints that you do. Uh, Netflix, uh, you brought up this topic and how much they're able to spend on content right now. And the market is assuming that they're going to grow into profitability uh, on that content spend at some point. And if you are held to different financial parameters right now, what do your shareholders expect from you? How much are you able to spend? right in order to compete
0: Did your eyes bulge when AT&T came out and paid a rich fat price for Time Warner chiefly for I think the HBO mhm You know, jewel in the crown. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell
2: you, we had a buy rating on Time Warner at the time. We did feel that the asset was undervalued, and one of the things that we were really interested in uh, that the company was not doing at the time, but which is AT and T is speaking about more now in the HBO Max product, was taking content spend. So investment that this company was making on the Turner networks which is a legacy business which had declining subscribers. And we said, why not take some of that content and make it available on your direct-to-consumer HBO product, right? And in our discussions with them as a standalone company, they said, we could do that, but we're not ready to do that. We felt that was value that could be unlocked in that business. So we think it's interesting now to see that AT&T is increasingly talking about taking that budget that was going to Turner and making it available to their HBO Max subscribers.
0: So um, you, you inevitably get questions from clients uh, from the industry on login fatigue. Mm-hmm. Now, I experience this holistically and it gets into a whole other thing because my brother is going to kill me if, he, if, if I insist that I pay for uh, Spotify. It's actually on a shared family plan and ditto with Netflix. Sure, But if I break out my relationship with Comcast and say I, give them, I, I cut the cord and I go mm-hmm. $40 a month for $50 a month even for their premier unthrottled Wi-Fi-only broadband package – Everything else that I add to it, if I kind of uh, back of the envelope to right now with everything we want, with uh, Disney, with HBO Max, with Netflix, with whatever it is, YouTube Red, Hulu, I mean, it gives you an aneurysm mm-hmm. thinking about it. I get to about $160 a month. Mm-hmm. So what you did was you took the uh, crammed down package that Comcast had before with two-thirds of the stuff I would never watch, like gardening TV or mm-hmm. you know outdoor network and uh, just reinvented it on my own, but it's incredibly uh, 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 frustrating for me. I am the one who buys the set top unit. I have to keep up with the technology. I get how many bills a month? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I
2: probably have a little bit more optimistic or, or, or favorable view of it. And, and I, I do think that uh, embedded in your point is a question that we get a lot. So I would say two things, actually. One is the complexity of managing different subscriptions versus getting one bundle right The second is the cost of adding all of these things up. The two things that I would point out that I think are favorable relative to where we were before, right is number one, you have opted into each one of those bundles. And so for example, if you love Game of Thrones, you can decide wait for it to stack up, get HBO for one month, turn it back off. You got all of Game of Thrones for one month, one price with ease. No need to call anybody in customer service. No need to have anybody come to your house. No need to change any equipment. You could do that. So you get the optionality that you didn't have in the past. um, and And you do have that ease component I just brought up, which is you can make decisions whenever you want about how you want to consume it. Now, is it perfectly simple? The answer is absolutely no. Is it more economically rational? Do you get choice basically on everything other than sports? Yes, you do now.
0: So, you know, the great Warren Buffett has this quote that says, only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked, mm. right? And I think like that that applies also in the case of finally when Netflix and HBO crack down on password sharing. Mm. You're going to see the true willingness to pay, especially among millennials. Thank you, bro, by the way, for subsidizing my uh, Netflix and uh, Spotify forever. Subsidizing is even an understatement. But <laughs> you see a lot of that among mm-hmm. people. And are these guys terrified to kind of – Bring down that rule and say no. We're gonna we're gonna become uh, brutally uh, discriminating about everybody having to pay.
2: Yeah, it's a, it is a very difficult situation. It's one that we've actually asked Netflix frequently, and we just spoke with them on their uh, most recent earnings call on the topic, and they continue to try to answer the question in a, a somewhat um, uh, what do I want to say freeloader friendly way, if you yeah. will. So on the one hand, you do have a product which does provide multiple streams simultaneously and virtually every one of these companies does do that. That is embedded in the product. And I would argue that that is a, from from both the consumer and from the corporate side, a a fair way of looking at things and something that that is a value that's added. Then, of course, you have the situation that says, where do I draw the line on who should be using these multiple streams and who shouldn't? Who should be able to log in or not log in at different points in time? What is an entity in terms of a customer? And I think from Netflix's perspective uh, in particular, they'd been in a a period where their goal was to just have as many people exposed to the product and come to love the product as possible. So cracking down, if you will, on um, two different, let's say, uh, consumer entities both using the same login and password wasn't their primary goal. Now, I think that what you'll see is uh, the, 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 the strategy would be to, let's say, make it somewhat more inconvenient for people in two different geographies to be logging in at the same time. But it's still a very difficult process to decide who's using the product the way they, they Maybe they don't want to
0: know because they have to fess up that they actually didn't have the pricing power that they thought they had. It, it's, it's one of many ways of thinking about it. Um, but I
2: think ultimately it comes down to where do you draw the line between uh, potentially alienating uh, a customer who's using it the way that you would intend them to, right? And trying to ensure that you don't have somebody effectively stealing your, your service.
0: Mike, what do you make of Disney? Um, it's it's kind of like the Popeye's chicken sandwich, this uh, streaming <laughs> package this year, the Popeye's chicken sandwich of 2019. Everybody's suddenly saying, especially at that price point, $6.99, and you can give me the Star Wars franchises and your kids want Various princesses and mermaids and, and, and everything else. But then again, I'm also told that Disney has consolidated control of Hulu, which is supposed to be that also ran but gives you an enormous library of television. Um, has that been brought under one label at this point or can you break out the economics for me?
2: Yeah, so Disney uh, is is – in a year where new entrance to the streaming uh, landscape has been has been uh, front of mind, uh, Disney, uh, I would say, sort of takes the crown as the the uh, the most impactful. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Right, number one, uh, the company has the deepest library of intellectual property and arguably the broadest. Uh, mechanism for monetizing that intellectual property out there, meaning that they don't only do uh, media content, but they have parks, they have consumer products, et cetera, right? In addition to your point, Disney launched this this Disney Plus streaming product on, on the 12th of November, but through their acquisition of Fox uh, and and other transactions, they consolidated uh, control of Hulu, uh, which with 28 million plus uh, subscribers, um, domestic subscribers across both its uh, on-demand and then its, its live platforms is, is one of the largest players uh, in the space when you think of direct-to-consumer. Um, to your question of, of whether they're consolidating it, Disney does offer uh, a bundle of their three streaming services, Hulu. Uh, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus. Oh, that's uh, right. I discount. forgot about that's ESPN. Right.
0: You can't talk about Disney without you ESPN. Can.
2: You can't. They have and 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 I, I think if, if if complexity and I haven't mentioned the term fragmentation, but really fragmentation of services, fragmentation of consumption. These are the things that that tie back into your original questions about how do corporations uh, start addressing how how they make things available and how they monetize them and how much they invest. And if I bring it back to Disney, Disney is is investing. Right. This is a drag on the company's economics in the coming year. Um, over three billion dollars of, of of net loss um, at this particular business. at that teaser rate for the it, Disney Plus. It's 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 the teaser rate. It's not only Disney Plus. So remember, it's across all of their well, streaming ESPN. Products, we've but. done
0: it. We've done episodes on how that struggle is that wrenching cord cutting dilemma oh. that it's so invested in the cable infrastructure and extracting these massive rents from the cable companies and the broadband providers every month, but then customers are getting this sticker shock when they realize what the standalone product of a full Disney streaming experience would cost. Mm-hmm. And then when you add that to, all right, I need my Netflix, I need my HBO, suddenly you're saying I could pay for three of these, not 10 of these.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, it, like, like I said, there's, there's a lot of common themes in here. Number one, we love the choice for the consumer, right? So you say, I can pay for three, I can't pay for 10. Again, that's still your choice. Turn it on and off when you want. You want to watch uh, certain Star Wars content when it comes out. The Mandalorian is a high-profile uh, original television program that, that Disney has on Disney+. Plus. It's going to be on for a certain period of time as they make those shows available, and then it's over. You can come and watch it. And for a price that's less than a single movie ticket, right? You can have a month of that content, and you can turn it back off. Their goal, of course, is to make sure that there's enough great product on there to keep you on month after month, which I think is something that Netflix has been very successful at. But ultimately, the economics, keep in mind, number one, Disney is investing, and if you wanna be blunt about it, losing a significant amount of money on this product too. They're wrestling with the issue that you just spoke about, which is they have these cable subscribers, which are paying very well. How do they navigate that while Why they're do also trying to grow the stream business? It's the
0: same we've you, looked with print. We've looked at Microsoft self-disrupting to get ahead absolutely. of. It's very hard to leave your legacy moneymakers. It is. It is. Well, you're a publicly traded company
2: like Disney. Sometimes your hand is forced, though, right? You look at, at uh, pay TV subscriber declines right now. And the, the, the struggle that most of these companies have is how do I navigate these declines? and try to maximize my economics while also not further fueling the rate of decline in those pay TV subscriptions, which are so valuable to me. So if you think about Disney, and we like Disney, and one of the reasons— And by the way, it just
0: hit an all-time high at $151 a share, which is— um, kind of the envy of the industry right now. It was slumping in the early aughts where everybody said, nope, nobody's watching ABC programs. And then it had lost. And then ESPN peaked about five, six years ago. And there was doubt and hand-wringing about that. But a lot of excitement over Disney Plus.
2: That's you're, you're exactly right. If you you look at the stock reaction, it's very interesting because when the company fully introduced what this product would look like in April, they laid out a path for investment, meaning that that near-term financial estimates for the company were going to go down. Um, and you know what? The stock has has appreciated significantly since they made that announcement. And the reason is, the reasons are, I should say, but, but really the core is um, an acknowledgement of the challenges that you have in the legacy business and a plan for trying to continue to make as much of that business as possible. But a broader plan, which takes the intellectual property, which I would argue is is uh, you know at the top of the industry, the envy of the industry, if you will, uh, and say this is how we plan to monetize it directly with the consumer using technology on a global basis, and that ability to scale that content and that product globally, as well as drive more fans of the Disney model, if you will, more broadly, more consumer products. More park visitation—that's uh, an opportunity that most of the other companies in the space don't have.
0: Mike, we only have you for a few more minutes, and I, I can't wait to keep having you on the show because this is a this is a sector that we keep revisiting. I mean, we could just wonk out on ESPN alone. What do you think this does for the next leg of of mergers and acquisitions? Like, I'm thinking Verizon. Verizon is not that aggressive. It's an enormous broadband provider. It's an enormous wireless cash cow. Uh, But it has, what, HuffPo, Yahoo, AOL. In terms of content, it really hasn't gone out whole hog. Wouldn't it make a lot of sense for Verizon to want to put the screws to a, a nemesis like Comcast by maybe JVing with Disney? Or I don't know if a straight-up merger or something. There they have been conversations in the past of Comcast and Disney. Does that does that old holy turn of the century grail of content and distribution, dare I say AOL time warner, make sense again?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I, I can't really speculate on, let's say, a particular company or particular uh, agreement that could happen, but I will say this. The concept of this combination of owning content and owning distribution, I don't think that there is um, you know, uh, undeniable evidence that it's the right strategy to take. And I think you can look at Verizon, and they did uh, make some content acquisitions over the last couple of years, and I think that they've dialed back a bit to focus more on, you know, excellence at wireless and really looking f- at partnerships. For example, their partnership with Disney right now offering the service free for one year to their wireless subscribers as, as the way that they want to pursue um, the, the best possible result in their core business where they truly differentiate, and that's in wireless. Now, whether that will ultimately be right or wrong, I think, is TBD. But the important thing, in my mind, is for these companies to figure out what their killer app is and make sure their investment is always going into that.
0: Guggenheim's Michael Morris, you are always welcome in the show. In fact, we're going to do a part two, I promise, with you on you know, when the tide does go out, when the capital markets dry up, like how this is going to shake up. Glad to have you as a neighbor. Glad to be here. Down here Appreciate in the RVA, it. sir. Thank you so much. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Catch this show on NPR member station, VPM News on NPR.org and on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. We are over the top, never throttled, unlimited megabits per second of public radio goodness. No password necessary. So share us often. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.